This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, uh, we are talking to uh, one of the leading economic historians uh, in, in the world today and an expert on contemporary economic pathologies, if I might say an expert on economic crashes, uh, my friend Adam Tews. Adam is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. He's the author of a number of books that all of my students are familiar with, uh, Wages of Destruction, which is one of my uh, all-time favorites, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, a book that actually highlights uh, Nazi concerns about American economic uh, competitiveness on the eve of World War II. He's also written uh, The Deluge, The Great War, and The Remaking of the Global Order, Crashed, his most recent book, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. And then an older book, uh, Statistics and the German State, 1900 to 1945. Uh, most recently, Adam has been publishing prolifically, uh, putting me to shame, uh, publishing in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, uh, on issues related to the current economic crisis. Uh, Adam, thanks for taking the time away from your writing to talk to us. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Before we turn to uh, Adam, uh, we have, of course, Zachary Suri's uh, scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Fallen. Fallen. Well, let's hear it. Fallen. We are all waiting on the edge of a ravine. We are all staring into some vision of future doom. We are all waiting on the edge of a ravine, six feet apart, trying to cover our mouths when we cough. We are all falling off some Everest-like peak in the timeline of history, all sleeping in the same dreamlike state. And all that was true is wrong, and everything that was false is now some cruel reproach for those who can even remember anything else. There was never a time like this before. Never have we fallen so gloriously together down the dark ravine of economic forecasts, like downhill headlights trying to illuminate the bends of a steep mountain road, as if some bitter recollection of the prosperity of strip malls and water slide America. We are sliding into the uncertain future of the fallen, the way the airplanes wait patiently on the tarmac, fallen out of the sky, the way the restaurants are all locked, and we are in our sweatpants waiting for the hard rebuke of the ground. And that is not to be a pessimist, for the grass now untrampled, the translucent leaves of the oak branches unpolluted, it was all so beautiful this afternoon, walking among my neighbors along the empty streets. Uh, Zachary, the last stanza reminds me a bit of T.S. Eliot. Did you have that in mind? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, what What is your poem about? My poem is really about um, what it's like uh, as a nation to uh, find yourself um, really on the edge uh, and in the middle of a major economic crisis after so many years of economic uh, boom, and in many ways how sudden but also how dangerous it feels. Right, right. Well, that's a perfect spot to turn to uh, to Adam. Uh, Adam, uh, we're historians, and 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 this podcast is about the history of democracy and its relevance for for today. How can history help us to understand this moment? Well, I think there are several different ways in which historians might help, and uh, many colleagues have put their shoulders to the wheel over the last couple of weeks. I mean, the people I don't I know are not the people best suited to, to really help. Who are the the historians of uh, public health, the historians of the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919? They obviously have have knowledge and expertise which is immediately relevant. Um, 
But I think there's another genre of uh, historian who've been called upon, notably those who work on war economies. Recently, there's been a whole slew of excellent articles that I would recommend in Foreign Policy by, by Nick Mulder, a former student of mine. Yes. An excellent piece in Financial Times, if you've got access to that, uh, citing a bunch of British historians. And then um, I think there's also a roundup on Bloomberg. So really, a lot of people have gotten engaged in, in quite naturally, I think, in this, this question of what the crisis means for the necessity of mobilization. Clearly, we need to change the structure of production. Uh, and all of those also, I think, make the kind of obverse comment, um, which is the one that I take up really in the in the Washington Post, which is that which is that history can also help us to understand the uniqueness of this crisis. And I think that's really, you know, where what history provides is that it helps us both to think of parallels and analogies and similarities, which may be helpful in confronting our current reality, but also warns us and alerts us when when something truly radical and unprecedented occurs, as did this morning with the release of the labour market numbers for the United States, with th- more than 3 million uh, new uh, people signing on for unemployment insurance in the US. This is completely unprecedented in its severity. It's a shock like none other. It's 10 times worse, roughly speaking, than what we saw in the worst months of the 2008-9 crisis. Ultimately, the unemployment during the Great Depression of the 30s accumulated to far more. But even then, there was no month quite like the week that we've seen. Um, And we have more weeks to come as this closure closure bites. So so that, too, is a useful role for historians, is to to remind us that, in fact, maybe something that we're confronting is radically new. I think climate change fits in the same category of radically new problems. and to sharpen our awareness, therefore, of, of just how difficult our situation is, how complex it is, and and how we can't really escape, in other words, also the present that we're in, right? So we cannot leap back to some preferred world for which we had a solution. In a sense, you know, Pearl Harbor analogies always strike me as a little bit too comforting. They're almost a bit of escapism because we know how that story ended. And and despite the casualties, it ended well. Our side won and it was a good war and we prevailed. And and the the horrifying thing about our current moment is that it doesn't have any of that clarity um, or or certainty, Um, not for any one of us individually, uh, not for our families, our loved ones, the most vulnerable that, that we may know, and not for us collectively. Right. In, in most of our conversations, Adam, about uh, other policy issues on this podcast and, and, and in other settings, we're usually looking, as you said, for a historical analogy or a historical setting to give us some comfort and some comparison to, to move forward. You're arguing here, as you do in The Washington Post, that, that this moment is truly unprecedented. If that's true, which I'm sure it is, what do we do with that? Well, then I think we have to start. This is, I mean, what I like about that move is that then it forces you to really look at at the present. I mean, there's no, you know, there's there's no point in spending a lot of time, you know, trying to look for big, broad parallels to something that happened in 1929. What you have to do ruthlessly and relentlessly is just throw yourself into the immediate present. So I spent all afternoon looking back at the reports put together by the IMF, um, the, you know, the International Monetary Fund and the, mm-hmm. the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, that's the club of central bankers who last fall in October, November, December, were putting out re- alarming reports about the state of global debt um, at that moment, uh, four months ago. Um, 
which now, of course, appear even more alarming in light of what's happened in global financial markets in the last two weeks. But my awareness of and the significance of the messages that they were giving us then um, uh, is, is even more heightened, if you like, by the reality of the last two weeks. So I think you have then to orientate yourself immediately in the present. This doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't some general conclusions that you can draw. It's it's likely that, you know, if stock markets plunge, then investors will run to safety in something like US Treasuries, government debt, which are one of the safe havens, except that that didn't even happen last week and the week before that. Um, again, um, that bench line of normality where we have an inverse relationship between riskier and less risky assets, that broke down. Why? Because Everyone was panicking. The only kind of financial asset that anyone wanted was cash. Um, and under those circumstances, even gold sold off. So again, you have that, you know, what philosophers call a dialectical relationship between thesis and antithesis, similarity and difference, oscillating backwards and forwards. Right. And, and it does seem that we've moved, whether consciously or not, into a new, a new deal analogy in thinking about what to do about this, the way our uh, stimulus packages have been discussed and various other things. Are, are you warning against that as well? I do think it's wrong. Yeah, I think it's the wrong analogy because um, stimulus isn't the point here. And, and, and this is also why the World War II analogy is so misleading, uh, because in the war, of course, the point is mobilization. In a stimulus, the idea is to use government spending to create a chain reaction which dynamizes the private economy and puts people back to work. And that's the opposite of what we need. I mean, what we're actually trying to do is, if you like, induce a kind of like a medically induced coma in the economy, put us on life support, knock the economy out for a period of two to three months. And then the purpose of the two trillion dollars, and there will need to be more that is being injected, is to tide people over, right, to enable us to get through this without excessive scarring. Because the real worry when you do this, in the same way as if you actually put a patient in an intensive care unit, on a ventilator, there is lasting damage. This is the, you know, we're right now obsessed with getting places on ventilators. I had, a, unfortunately, a brother-in-law who died on a ventilator. And I can tell you, that's not a place you want to be ever, um, right. because it does permanent damage to your body. Uh, and it does permanent damage to you psychologically, because they, they put you under with opiates, but you're not actually fully unconscious. So you live in a kind of zombie-like state, um, as your body is kept alive. It's absolutely horrifying. Um, and that's what we're doing to the national economy right now. Um, we, you know, we are all looking at our windows, say in New York, I can see businesses slowly dying in front of my eyes. And the question is, can we, through various means of makeshift, through credits, through government assistance, keep them alive in a diminished and weakened state such that, say, in July, they can reopen and that business will still be there? Is it conceivable that that one could do this, what you've laid out, that one could, in essence, put the economy in a coma and then revive it from a coma to something that would look like what we thought of as a global and national economy before? We've never done it before. So if it, it's possible, but it is a gigantic experiment. But But flat out, we've just never done it before. There are historical analogies to economies which are suddenly shut down, but they're all very unattractive. So the end of communism in the Soviet right. Union. Uh, the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945 or Imperial Japan, or the beginning of World War I when people didn't understand what the war was going to be about. And they thought it was basically a kind of national holiday to prove, you know, Europe's manhood. And that turned out to be a misunderstanding. But in the first two months of the war, there was unemployment and the financial markets sold off. 
before they realised this was going to be a war of total mobilisation. But those are our only even remote equivalences to this. There is no other moment where we have systematically employed the power of the state, and not just in one place and one city. We're now doing it across all of the major advanced economies to simultaneously shut them down. So it's an astonishingly daring experiment which we've tumbled into, and you can see the pushback, right? I mean, you—it's obviously I, I find the, the the actions of the uh, President Trump appalling and, and profoundly irresponsible, but it's easy to sympathise with. In fact, I don't know what your household is like, but in our households, each one of us sort of basically day by day struggles, and the others in the household have to help that individual who at that moment is struggling with the logic of quarantine. You know, yes, yes we have to do this. This is, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Look, there are still people outside. No, nevertheless, we nevertheless have to keep in lockdown. You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a truly schizophrenic situation to find ourselves in, and it's a measure, I think, of the degeneracy of American politics right now that it's finding it so difficult to to you know, hold the line, uh, which is indeed a very difficult line to tow. Uh, what are the uh, likely consequences if we do not handle this crisis well for United States um, uh, g- global economic standing? Well, I mean, I think that the immediate consequence is that we end up in a really bad equilibrium. Game theorists have ways of theorizing the situation that we're in. And this is a sort of prisoner's dilemma type problem where if we can all cooperate to effect a massive shutdown, then the period of shutdown is short, the number of casualties is small, and the whole thing ends up looking like a success of national policy, our basic standards of political judgment and public conduct are confirmed, and it isn't exorbitantly expensive in economic terms. And that's, as it were, the good equilibrium that the South Koreans the Taiwanese, and indeed even China, look like they're steering towards. They are now making real steps to restart their economy. And unfortunately, what we have in the West is, as it were, the degenerate form of that, where we oscillate back and forth. We want to get to the restart far too soon. And as a result, I think the risk is that we end up with very massive economic losses and very large casualties. How that then plays out in terms of um, you know our, the position of the United States economy globally is very complex, and, and because this is completely unfamiliar terrain, novel terrain, we will have to wait and see. Um, for me, the urgency of doing all of the writing and thinking I am is precisely trying to accompany that with 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 whatever resources I can. And there is a there is a, a extraordinary heterogeneity in the American response because. You know, at the same time as we have, as it were, the goings on at the White House press conference every day, we have the actions of the Fed, um, which over the last two weeks has once again, um, following on from its actions in 08 and after, demonstrated its completely indispensable position at the heart of the global economy. Um, The financial economy of the world, like it or not, runs on dollars. There's only one central bank that can provide unlimited quantities of those. The Fed understands this, despite the fact that it's a national central bank. It understands that it has a global role. And very quickly this time, um, it reacted to the crisis by opening up um, liquidity provision, dollar provision to central banks in other countries. So... Um, and that is showing effects. Um, it's probably not going to be enough. There's going to be have to be a very much more complex safety net put in place for the emerging markets and developing economies, which are only beginning now to stumble into the depths of the crisis. Um, but the Fed is acting. And so there's a real sort of um, lack of coherence, really, about America's position in this crisis, which I would argue has been characteristic of America's position 
Well, I mean, you could go all the way back. Jeremy kindly cited my book about World War One. You could go back really to the beginning of America's entry into world affairs. It's difficult for America to concert, if you like, the different facets of American power and American politics around presenting a coherent face and a coherent policy towards the outside. There are high points in which it manages to do this, um, the Marshall Plan being the most obvious one, but we're in a low point right now. Right. I was going to say, Adam, it certainly uh, sounded like you were echo- echoing much of your early work on the, the disorganization and incoherence of American policy in the early 20th century. And may- maybe this is something that's symptomatic of the way American pol- political economy operates. I-, I wanted to ask you more about the Fed, because I've been trying to understand this as well. Uh, it does seem to me the historical, uh, historical analogy the Fed is operating with is from 2007, 2008, and it appears they're trying to do what they did then and more. What are the limits of what they can do? How much quantitative easing is possible? How much liquidity can they put into the market? Um, uh, you know, we got 99 problems, but that ain't one. Like, that that really isn't the thing to worry about. Like, the, the, the Fed can do as much as it likes. There is extraordinary demand right now for dollars in the world. Um, there is extraordinary demand for U.S. Treasuries as a safe asset. There were blips in the Treasury market, which were very unprecedented, but that's a sign of the fact that what people really, really wanted was dollars. In other words, basically just cash accounts with the Fed would mm-hmm. do them just fine. So there really is no limit to what the Fed can do in that respect. Um, that doesn't need to be our concern. I think the real question is, can the Fed reach and should the Fed reach all of the nooks and crannies of the credit system, both within the United States and outside. I mean, you guys, you folks are in Texas, um, you know, one of the absolutely hardest hit sectors, um, for better or worse, is going to be the energy sector, the oil sector, right. the tech, the right. shale, the shale industry, which is, you know, as, as environmental critics will tell you, basically a kind of a, a, a child of QE, a child of Federal Reserve low interest rate policy. Um, obviously, it's a technological uh, uh, innovation of very considerable significance. Um, the real achievements of the fracking industry are undeniable, but financially, it would not be possible without uh, an extremely um, uh, mild, shall we say, monetary policy environment. In other words, very low interest rates and very easy credit. Um, and in a situation like this, where credit is getting tight for private borrowers, uh, and where there is a huge loss of confidence and commodity prices globally, and as above all the oil price have collapsed, um, that sector is in real trouble. And it's not clear really whether the Fed is able or willing to devise instruments to protect what's called high yield or in colloquial terms, junk uh, corporate borrowing. Uh, junk isn't quite as bad as it sounds. It just means um, <laughs> you know corporate debt, which is not uh, Coca-Cola or Intel um, uh, or Google, you know, triple A rated, bomb-proof, gold-plated um, uh, corporates. Everyone else is in the so-called high yield or junk category, uh, including, you know, loads and loads of brand names you're familiar with. The entire hotel industry, even in the good year, is in that category, as is mm-hmm. much of the wild catting um, independent oil industry. And um, the Fed has, as it were, legal limitations on the kinds of risks that it's really able to take on behalf of the American taxpayer. And that doesn't generally include, um, well, it doesn't generally include buying investment grade corporate debt, but they've, they've, they've found a way around that by creating an off balance sheet vehicle to make support possible for corporate debt. To go to the in- high yield sector would be really difficult. And of course, the boundary between the two is not really, it's not a sort of scientifically given natural fact. It's a, it's a judgment by ratings agencies. 
that decides whether debt is in the investment grade or in the high yield category. And there's an awful lot of debt notionally still in investment grade, about half, in fact, of the stuff which is notionally investment grade is on the boundary. It's triple B. So it's just one downgrade away from dropping into a category which the Fed can't currently support. So that gives you an idea of how how you know institutionally constrained the Fed's action is. It can do a general credit burst. It can provide limitless quantities of dollars. It can pump liquidity easily into the high-end bits of the American economy. Whether it can reach the mom-and-pop store, the little restaurant, or even the medium-sized business with a slightly dubious credit rating, and quite a lot of the American economy does exist on that line between life and death, uh, that's a very different question. Well, and it does seem to me, Adam, that we have reason to be skeptical just based on historical experience that the mom and pop store will will benefit from this. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, 0809 was, as it were, a, a, a sort of shocking demonstration of the way in which bailouts of bias towards the big actors, too big to fail, became a byword for you know, that oligarchic, oligopolistic tendency within capitalism. It's not just a matter of technique and technicality that it's difficult for the Fed to reach those businesses. They're not, you know, in the Fed's terms, systemically relevant would be the language that's used. Um, And, you know, their failure is just one tree falling in a forest. It's not a forest fire. Um, And so it's easy to ignore them. But I do actually think the politics has shifted here in quite an interesting way. And the Fed is making a really determined effort to try and reach out beyond that frame. Ben Bernanke and Yellen, I don't know really so much about Powell, but they were quite affected, I think, by the force of that critique and the power of the inequality meme from you know, 2013 onwards, did a lot of research on how central banks could do more provision for small businesses. Um, and I think the politics of the bailout are quite interesting, right? I mean, there's, in this, obviously, it's kind of bifurcated. There's an element of the $2 trillion, which is really a slush fund for big business. Right. But then if you look at the other parts of it, they're very heavily weighted to lower income families, um, which will leave, as it were, the top 10%, many of whose jobs are also in jeopardy in a, in a more uncomfortable position than we might expect from previous actions by Congress. So this is a genuine bargain, I think, between the Democrats on the one hand and the Republicans on the other. It's not just a rerun of the Republican tax cut of a few years ago. Right. I, I guess, though, to, to, to just stay on this point for one more minute, it does seem to me that what what the stimulus bill that passed the Senate shows is just as you said, that there's a there's an argument for a more vibrant social welfare net and there's an argument for bailing out the big businesses. But we, it, it does still seem that small businesses are, have trouble getting the help yeah. they need, even yeah. in this point. Absolutely. And all of the evidence that we're getting from, from, um, from surveys of different types shows that they're very fragile. They're you know, four to six weeks away from failure. You only have to live on a, you know, a busy high street in any American city to know how rapid the churn is of restaurants and stores and small businesses of all types. They come and go at, you know, like at an extraordinary pace. And so for them, if any of them lose, you know, six weeks, if there isn't some comprehensive deal on rent payments and mortgage payments in particular, I would imagine are absolutely key. Um, then it's going to be very difficult for many of them to survive. I mean, the the data is is overwhelming. You know, like half of those businesses really don't have funds to enable them to tide over for more than four to six weeks. Um, I mean, we're personally affected this because my my wife has a small travel business. and, and, And but for the fact that I have a secure income at a university, she would be in 
terrible trouble. She's had to cancel all of the trips of the year. She has she has no way means of generating any additional revenue. And we've looked at the stimulus, and it's not obvious that a small business like that with a turnover, you know, a modest turnover, has any place in that in that package, except maybe through the small business loan um, facility. But it's it's like you say, it's really quite difficult to figure out where folks in that kind of position would go. Yeah, it's been quite startling to me, Adam, just living in Austin, Texas, where we're filled with these uh, restaurants and other small businesses that have been booming to see how quickly they go from boom to bust. It's it's extraordinary. It's really tough. And anyone who imagines that kind of bourgeois bohem fantasy of leaving your, you know, high pressure white collar job and then going into running your, you know, your boutique artisanal bakery or your lovely cafe, I think really needs to wake up and smell the coffee. I mean, those jobs are relentlessly self-exploiting. They're incredibly tough. I mean, as an academic who used to think of himself as a workaholic, living with somebody who's actually self-employed and actually has a business that relies on, you know, pitching, you know, trip after trip after trip to very demanding clients, you you really begin to sense what it actually takes to earn a living um, in a competitive marketplace. It's, It's extraordinarily tough out there for those kind of folks. Uh, moving to a different note, uh, what does this economic crisis and the fallout that we're really beginning to see tell us about the state of of globalism? Yeah, this is. I mean, these are the big questions. Um, um, I'm, I'm I'm in two minds, and I really think it's a bit of a Rorschach test. I mean, one of the one of the you know the, in a sense of you know there's there's a blot, and the blot is this massive shock that we're all experiencing. And there is a real tendency, I think, for people to project onto it what is, in a sense, already in their heads. Um, You know, there has been a great wave of commentary, which basically consists of, and now, in light of corona, may I propose the thing that I've always proposed anyway, (laughs) ism, if you like, in op-ed after op-ed. uh, and uh, you, you know, given, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a confirmed liberal internationalist with a cosmopolitan biography, and I just can't. I just I, it's difficult for me to think outside that box. That, that there's nothing about this crisis which convinces me that in and of itself it's an argument against globalism. Um, it, though I can easily see how it might be exploited for those purposes, and it's easy to see how you could get, and this is one of the reasons I'm kind of leery of the World War II analogy, because it rapidly becomes an argument for sort of autarkic industrial production of medical equipment, and you know we should all be sewing our own mouth guards. And there are heroic examples of this. The Czechs sure. in particular deserve far more credit than they've received for their national effort, in which everyone's just got their sewing machine out and basically made all the masks they needed. Small country, but nevertheless impressive. Um, But I I don't buy that necessarily. For me, it's an argument for intelligent globalism. Um, It's been an extraordinary global event in many ways, right? We've been in touch with each other, monitoring each other's progress. Um, If if you have the kind of life that, that I've been privileged to enjoy, then that's the way this crisis happens to you. It's absolutely not a national, local shock. I'm, I'm affected and, you know, as it were, exposed in so many different places at once, in Italy, in Germany, in Britain, in France, in the United States, in several different places in the United States. So for me, it becomes a drama of how we do globalism more intelligently and more safely in future. And, and for me, the response to the crisis would be upgrade the infrastructure of globalization, um, do smart things that make this a safe planet um, so that we can go on um, doing much of what we were doing before, which over the last 30 years has brought extraordinary benefits to huge numbers of people 
on the planet, not just the privileged. I mean, that's a that's really a canard, I think, that should be slain and needs to be slain over and over again. Um, though it has also obviously created inequality, and this is another dimension of this of that inequality that needs to be taken extraordinarily seriously. The, the most vulnerable, again, are going to be the poor, the people without insurance, the people who basically don't appear to have access to public media or the ability to process the messages so as to get make themselves and their nearest and dearest safe. I, 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 it'll be very interesting in the aftermath to look at the social composition uh, who, of those who died and those who got sick. Um, yes. Because my sense being in New York is that the affluent and educated are no longer on the street. Um, Some of them are in the Hamptons and the rest of us are frantically reading the New York Times and figuring out life strategies and trying to keep busy. And when you do venture out onto the street, that is not the population that you encounter on the street anymore. There are people begging, um, uh, right. you, you know, who are extraordinarily exposed. There are little shopkeepers on corners, extraordinarily exposed. There are people who are clearly isolated, elderly, in mobility devices, wandering around, and you just fear for their health over the next three or four weeks and the nightmare that awaits them in hospital when they end up there. Where again, at the front line, they will be treated by, you know, a a the the lower end of the medical hierarchy, which is overwhelmingly recruited from as far as i can see from the images women of color um, who are in the front lines of this struggle and dressed in garbage bags i mean it's an indignity and a shame on this country um and but that is a you know that is a problem not of globalism that's a problem of backing up globalism with the with the the tools of an adequate welfare state, with the intelligence of a modern public health system that actually deserves the name, and with some reserve capacity, right, um, right. you know, we should we should have stockpiles. I agree, no, and that's very well said, and 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 very sensible. But it, it does expose uh, one of the main contradictions or dialectics, as you were referring to earlier, which is that if we are to get through this and. Um, create a more vibrant global system as you're describing it, uh, we need more national control in the short term, right? Because the coma that we're going into is being enforced at the local level, not even at the national level in many ways, right? It's it's it's, it's uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. Well, well, exactly. I mean, I think that puts the whole national paradigm in question, you know, from that end. Not only is it clearly necessary that the Fed should act globally to support the global dollar system, not only are we going to need to think extremely seriously and imaginatively about how we contain the virus if and when we in North America get to the point of having contained it here, we are going to be in the business of ensuring that Mexico is a safe destination and a safe place of origin for the millions of people in our lives that have to commute back and forth between Mexico and the United States. Yes. And they in turn are going to need to know that the rest of Central America has also got you know R0 below one. So this is not going to be a battle that we can win. I mean, it has it's, it's a classic localization type problem in that it has to be won simultaneously at the local level. And at the global level, um, and um, so so I don't. I mean, I, I don't see the. Uh, it has been in education as a European um, being here during this crisis and seeing the extraordinary significance of the governors. I mean, if you think about the role of Cuomo in New York, or I don't even know the name of the person in Kentucky, but that's obviously a politician making a real difference to that community. Yes, um, yes. belaboring them every night, shaming people, calling people out, really, you know, driving. Um, uh, the emergency response, and, it, and you just have to look at the difference to the infection rates in Tennessee next door, and it's it's a it's a world apart. Um, so so 
again, the mobilization, yes, um, but I don't necessarily see the nation as the obvious frame um, uh, or, or the necessary one. I mean, there, there are moments when it, we, we may have to work at that level, but uh, beyond that, um, no, this has been overwhelmingly a problem of big cities apart from anything else. Um, right, right. Right. And, and there is an element of this where it almost seems like some of the best advice at times is to ignore national leaders and, and focus on yeah. just the institutions you're, you're describing. Uh, the same thing is happening in Brazil, right, where Bolsonaro right. is doing all this nonsense about herd immunity and the regional governors there in that vast country are also saying, absolutely, no way, we're not doing that. Right. Um, so the big states with federal issues. I mean, what's really amazing, I think, about China looking at, you know, across these examples now is the way there a nation state actually really did succeed in containing the problem in one province. And if you're able to do that, then then your options are completely different, right? So that's actually the only way, in a sense, of maintaining national control over the problem is to keep it localized in one region. By the time it becomes what we have in the US right now, it necessarily devolves to a multitude of crisis centers, um, which are too remote from Washington and are fighting their huge problems. And there'll be one in San Francisco, one in New York, one in Washington State, in due course, one in Miami. Um, and, you know, the, the center loses control. If you want central, true central control of this problem, you need to achieve what the Chinese did, which was right. campaign in Hubei. And then you can pipe in resources from all over the entire country. Um, right. But you can't do right. that. If, you know, if they'd had huge outbreaks in Shanghai and Beijing, the problem would be would have been a completely different uh, beast because there's massive regional politics in China, too. And so right. it would have been very difficult. No, that and that very well connects to one of, one of the themes in our podcast, which has been that the, the world we live in is a world that's globalized and localized, or yeah. in many ways globally decentralized. Yeah, um, and, and, and then networked, right, in strange ways across those exactly. that decentralization. Yeah. Exactly. So we we always like to close our podcast episodes, Adam, with with some discussion about what uh, citizens who are listening, uh, especially younger citizens, what they can do. What, what's your advice? Not necessarily survival strategies for the short term, though those are welcome as well, but how should uh, especially young listeners who care about the future of, uh, of both uh, the global health system as well as the global economy, what are the things they should be thinking about and doing today? Well, I think we all know what the rules are for the period of this pandemic. Like, we need to be patient with each other. <laughs> we need to learn to live in confined circumstances. We need not to drive each other crazy. Um, and Good those luck. are those are exactly those are those are those are tough. Those are tough lessons. Um, I mean, beyond that, I really do think it's a it's a spectacular opportunity for. For, for for kind of kind of public education. I mean, I'm a, you know I'm a professor. I can't help myself. Um, I think of a I think of a crisis like this as a gigantic lesson. You know, it's it's God's way of teaching us about 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 epidemiology. Uh, it's God's way of teaching us about exponential processes. Um, and there are other exponential processes which are also affecting us very dramatically. And when we come out of this, we will be right back into the politics of you know, climate change and uh, and the energy transition, which will define the lives of that generation of younger listeners that, that you're speaking about. Um, you and I, Jeremy, are too old, really, to see, you know, the climax of that problem in any real form. But for anyone in their 20s and in their teens, that's, that is the challenge of the 
30 years ahead, 30, 40 years ahead. So, so this, is a, this is a good moment to think hard about the implications of those kind of runaway processes and the extraordinary urgency of early action um, or, or timely action, at least. So for me, that's the real, the real takeaway here is, and some of the lessons that we're learning about what we can do in a confined and constrained way may, in the end, still have some relevance for that, for that, that next challenge. Um, and that's a, that's a way in which this kind of remote podcast that we're doing here and the kinds of communication that we can learn to enjoy in this crisis may, in fact, be, be you know, harbingers of a, of a future way of life. Yes, no, I, I agree. Uh, Zachary, uh, do you agree with Adam? Do you, do you, do you also see uh, that for, for a younger generation, not, not the uh, old guys that Adam has labeled both he and I as being, uh, do you see this as, as a topic that, that's a call to action? And do you see people thinking and talking about this of your generation? I think that, uh, that, that it's definitely uh, on the minds of all young people at this moment. And I think what's particularly uh, poignant about it is that it affects everyone, that no mm. one can just look away and say it's, it's not about them. And I think that, as Adam said, this is really an opportunity to educate um, young people and old people alike about um, the importance of, of vital health infrastructure and of making sure that everyone has access to um, yeah. A healthcare network. What about thinking of yourself and the connections between your actions and those far away? Because that's been a, that's been at the core of this. What Adam was calling a complex system. I, I think that's um, that's definitely been a part of it to try and. But I, I do think that young people are still struggling with this concept. I like we talk about this in a class like World Geography to to see kids try and struggle to see how a virus originating uh, you from the beginning in China, how that's relevant to us is a little hard, but I think that's a real lesson for us now to see how something that started so so remote from us has become something that really affects their lives. Yeah, I mean, do not spend another February not reading the news from China. Is the one lesson I'm going to take away from this. I happened to be in Africa at the time, which is my only excuse, but you know, that that four or five week period just haunts me now. They, it was yeah. all going on there. They were having to go through everything that we're going through here. And we simply did not, somehow the penny didn't drop. Like that that's this right. was going to happen to us too. Um, that's that's right. a disconnect we can't afford anymore, I think. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I fall into the same uh, category. I, I, I kept thinking this is something that was not going to be quite as large and, and move quite as quickly as it did. And uh, even though now I look back and all the evidence was in front of me, Adam, it's, yeah. it, it, we, we operate in paradigms that don't keep up with the changes around us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. I hope all of our listeners will uh, look for your work, and I'm sure you'll be writing a lot more. I hope you'll be writing a lot more on these issues in the New York Times and Washington Post, Financial Times, uh, Guardian, and elsewhere. Zachary, thank you for your uh, inspiring poem. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.